Welcome back to Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. We are on episode three already, which means it's time to talk about Iron Man 2. It's right, we are three films in. The MCU has existed for two years and we already have a sequel, so hey-ho. My name is Matt Waters, I'm your faithful host. I do all the hosting in the real world because I'm the only one who has his shit together enough to write things down. I am joined by the genius mind of Ben Phillips, who can just, off the top of the dome, rant about comics. Ben, how are you this evening? I am good. I have braved Oxford Street at Christmas time to date this episode. Yeah, also that plays well internationally. Uh, imagine trying to shop in like I don't know Times Square. <laughs> I don't... Oxford Street is a well-known international location. I hope so for your sake. So it's Iron Man two, released May seventh, two thousand ten, which makes it two years since the the last Marvel film. We skipped over 2009 for a Marvel movie. Yeah, they released Iron Man and Hulk like almost back to back and then left it a year and then came back with Iron Man 2. In the time since then, The Dark Knight, Watchmen and X-Men Origins Wolverine have all come out. So, you know, a, quite a scale there to play with. Uh, also <laughs> one, the, of them is, one of them is good. Yes. Also The Losers, but I mean, some people... Don't even know that's a comic book movie, including Matt, until like two years ago. So yeah, you know, we have had quite a high standard of comic book movie exist now. Uh, I feel around this time people are basically talking about Iron Man and they're talking about The Dark Knight and everything else is trash. Let's, you know, let's do a sequel to Iron Man then. They made it on a budget of $200 million, which is significantly up. From the 140 from the first one and uh, 150 from Incredible Hulk. Uh, Much more... You know, CGI this time, lots of Iron Man copies, all of that. Bigger cast, bigger sets, more action, noisier. It made $624 million, which is more than the first one. And, um, well, not quite triple Hulk, but, you know. I feel this is, you know, sequel effect where Iron Man 1 came out. Huge, huge success, word of mouth, DVD sales. Everyone's then like, I'm going to go see Iron Man 2. Uh, because without... It's not going to take us an hour of podcasting to determine that public opinion uh, is lower on Iron Man 2 than it is on Iron Man 1. But hey, uh, John Favreau is back. It is the first film he directed since Iron Man. He did a lot of acting in between in some bad comedy movies. It is his last time directing a Marvel movie as well. He gets a producer credit on The Avengers, I believe. I'm sure he has a producer credit on Iron Man 3. I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but I would imagine he does. Written by... Ben Phillips' Bay, Justin Theroux, who, <laughs> fresh off writing Tropic Thunder, which got him the recommendation for this gig, because who's in Tropic Thunder? Well, Robert Downey Jr. is. First film, as we covered before, is, you know, sort of written by a committee, and, like, almost all of the dialogue is improvised. This one actually written as a script, for better or worse. It's 125 minutes, basically the same length as Iron Man 1. Far shorter than the DC films I mentioned, which are forever long. It was pretty it's longer than Iron Man one though. By like one minute. No, it feels longer. Oh, it feels it. Sorry, yeah, yeah, it does feel longer. It does. Favreau always wanted to do a trilogy. Uh, he wanted to save uh, Jeff Bridges' sort of turn to the dark side to the second film, but they pushed it. They brought it forward because they decided Mandarin was hard to do. Uh, Shane Black had some consultation on the script. Uh, he will, of course, be the writer and director of Iron Man three. He also helped with dialogue in Iron Man 1. 
he suggested some key storylines. Um, Favreau and Downey came up with the story, and then Justin Theroux came on and wrote it. I mean, it's a pretty uneventful production, aside from the very ugly public dumping of Terrence Howard and recasting him with Don Cheadle, which I guess we will get to later. And, you know, I just think it's interesting that they, they thought they'd strike while they aren't hot and go straight back to a success, um, rather than debut all of their characters. Uh, although it is the only sequel of Phase 1. So, Ben, we it's quite difficult to talk about, you know, whenever we get to a new superhero, I like to have you give us a sort of rundown on the, the history of the character, the sort of impact it has on you, um, how I feel about them. We kind of did that with Iron Man 1, but I figured instead what we'd do is say what kind of an impact Iron Man had on comics like like the opposite way so you know after iron man one comes out what happens to tony stark in the comics i mean it's one of those things where since iron man's come out like before iron man came out we were actually just finishing up civil war in the comics which if you don't know is the story in which captain america and iron man have a difference of opinion on whether or not superheroes should be registered they should not Um, (laughs) <laughs> Iron Man comes off very badly in this story he locks up people who don't register and they go into a prison and people die uh, he's a Thor robot at one point because Thor is dead in the comics when Civil War's happening <laughs> comics um, yo <laughs> yeah. so at the end of Civil War Iron Man is kind of, the, kind of the villain of the Marvel Universe in fact he leads on to Norman Osborn being able to become the leader of the Avengers a dark period <laughs> a dark reign some would say <laughs> But yeah, so basically Iron Man came out in kind of like the, the year plus following um, Civil War ending. And it was kind of up to uh, Matt Fraction and Steve LaRocca, uh, LaRocca, who were writing and drawing the Iron Man comic at the time, to rehabil- rehabilitate Tony, which basically involves uh, resetting his brain to a point 10 years prior. So he hasn't actually done any of the things that he did over the course of Civil War to kind of like wash your hands of what he did. That's a gross thing they yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, and then from there, they basically just start to slowly turn Tony more and more into Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I mean, you flip open a, a comic book with Iron Man in it from the last like few years, it's they, they're just drawing Robert Downey Jr. now, in the same way that like Professor X started to you know, look more like uh, Patrick Stewart, etc. I think yeah. literally, when you, when you get to like a few years later, there is literally an artist who is just taking videos of Rob Downey Jr. and tracing over them <laughs> to put in the comic. I mean, it must have sped up the art. I mean, I, don't know. I, mean, I will not name the artist, but they are not very well regarded. Okay. <laughs> they, draw, they draw a lot of comics, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, so obviously Iron Man is going to be positioned over the years to be you know, far more prominent than he ever has been. I mean, I guess Civil War gave him that role as well, because he was sort of, you know one of the top two characters in that, but the idea of Iron Man front and centre, leader of the Avengers, leader of all events, that very much, to me anyway, felt like a reaction to the movie Iron Man being such a success. Yeah, I mean, at this point in the comics as well, uh, the the core three Marvel heroes of like Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, aren't even on the Avengers at this point. Iron Man's the only one who is, mm. and it's kind of a very tenuous, kind of almost almost will intend at this point of being in charge of the the avengers and stuff like that and it's not until the avengers come out that the avengers come out that all three of those characters are actually back on the avengers together and you start to see even more of this kind of cross-pollination between movie and film and comic book indeed all right so iron man 2 
plot time. I, I had to Google this because I wasn't sure because at times they make references to things and I'm like, when is this set? Uh, it is set before The Incredible Hulk and, yes. and Thor because Nick Fury makes some references to stuff in the Southwest, which I assume to be Hulk. So in the six months since declaring to the world, I am Iron Man, Tony claims to have successfully privatized world peace and he repeatedly defies government pressure to share or, or outright turn over his tech to the army, to the air force, to to the government. And he remains adamant nobody else can replicate his technology, especially his business rival, the dreamy Justin Hammer. Right on cue, Ivan Vanko, whose father invented the uh, the, the first version of the art reactor along with Tony's father. Uh, he creates his own miniaturized one exactly like Tony's, and he uses it to create a power a pair of like electrocharged whips because he's whiplash i don't they talk about like how he's got a suit and it's like he doesn't have a suit he has a pair of whips anyway he attacks tony in monaco and almost kills him but is captured justin hammer who's been humiliated by tony throughout the film he arranges for vanco to be broken out of prison and brings him on board to create a sort of fleet of knockoff iron man suits which he's gonna get a big fat government contract for Banco agrees, but he just ignores everything Justin Hammer says, and he makes a series of drones that only are loyal to him, so he can kill Tony Stark with them. Tony, meanwhile, has been suffering from declining health due to excessive use of the Iron Man suit, and he's got palladium poisoning from his arc reactor, and he just starts getting very drunk, and uh, he causes a scene while wearing his armour at his birthday party which causes Rhodey to put on the original prototype suit that he has to try and restrain him, and then Rhodey takes the suit and hands it over to the military, and they hire Justin Hammer, who kits it out with crazy amounts of guns. Nick Fury sort of intervened and starts a little downward spiral, gives him some of his father's old uh, research material and stuff, and it allows Tony to rediscover and invent a new element that magically fixes all of his problems so that he can have an arc reactor without, you know, being poisoned. <laughs> and then during Justin Hammer's big presentation of his drones and the new war machine suit, Vanco tells the drones to kill everyone, especially Tony Stark. And Tony and uh, War Machine team up, kill everyone. Not everyone, just the drones, obviously. And the film ends with uh, Fury telling Stark that S.H.I.E.L.D. have rejected him for the Avengers, and he will only be a consultant. And uh, Agent Coulson uh, arrives in New Mexico, where there's a big old hammer in the middle of a crater, teasing episode four of this podcast. Yeah, it's... there's certainly a lot more going on than in Iron Man 1, which you can sum up with, you know, he's taken captive and he builds the Iron Man suit and then he keeps tinkering with it, becomes Iron Man, fights Stain, and like that's basically the entirety of Iron Man 1. Public perception of this film is not good. It will forever be marked against Iron Man 1 because people loved Iron Man 1 so much because it was sort of fresh and it's like, here's a guy who revels in being a superhero and is just having fun. And this will obviously never be as original. So I think it does get a sort of... It's not that I think it's amazing. It's just I think it does get a little bit more knocked than it should just because it's held up against the first one. What are your sort of big picture thoughts on Iron Man 2? It's it's one of those weird movies where, like, you feel that there's more urgency to kind of, like, the start of the movie. And kind of, like, they've got all this confidence built from, like, kind of what they built in that, that first movie. And then about... A third halfway through just like all the momentum falls away from the movie and 
like it's it's really, it's really weird because they've got all these like really charismatic actors doing all this stuff, but like halfway through, it's just like they feel the urge to just kind of like start setting up Avengers in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's just like well, we had we had Samuel L. Jackson in this cameo in the first movie. We need to have more of him in this one, so they give him more to do. And we're like, it's fine, but like it never feels plot relevant in any way that's like actually important because basically he's just there to say your dad was working on something. Yeah, maybe, maybe go, maybe go have some digging rounds and stuff like that, and then you get like half an hour of him making an element, essentially. Yeah, I think it's like from when Vanko attacks him, it's sort of after that scene is over, it's like all of the air comes out of the film in a way, and it's just quite. I, w- I mean, for a while, I wouldn't say it's like then. I'd probably say it's more from like the scene where Tony sat in the donut. Okay, I mean, yeah, it's, that's when it's particularly pronounced. But yeah, it's just like it's just like that scene of the donut is the part where I, whenever I rewatch it, I'm always sat there going like, and then the scene from the donut is kind of where we're gonna yeah. slam on the brakes and kind of we're not gonna have any fun really until yeah the final the final act, and even then, fun is in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah, that is one of the like images that comes immediately to mind. It's him sitting in that donut in his Iron Man costume. It's like <laughs> I don't know. I there are part. I think in some ways. It's a more ambitious movie than the first one in some Oh, ways. totally. Like, there's, we criticised how Tony has the tiniest arc in the world and all the characters have nothing. There are far more journeys here and far more themes and narrative ideas. So in some ways I would place it above Iron Man 1. It's just Iron Man 1 has that unbridled fun factor. Like it's got it's got that kind of the energy of improv. Yeah. Like there's no there's no we know what the aim of the scene is gonna be, but we're just gonna have fun whilst we do it. Whereas this one feels like yeah. the scenes don't have as much room to breathe. Yeah. And they give and, you like a couple of those scenes here and there and they're not they don't have quite the punch. But you know, stuff like Tony and Pepper bickering about art and then he promotes it to CEO, it's like, okay, that's kind of fun. But then the rest doesn't have as much energy as that. Yeah, it's because I, I I remember watching this in a cinema and thinking like I'm having a lot of fun with this and kind of like just kind of switching off and stuff like that. But the more I thought about it as I kind of left, you kind of realise it's so much less substantial. Basically, from the second half, there's very few moments where I'm kind of thinking like, oh, this was really cool. Like the things that are there to sustain a, like more conversation about the in between this movie and Thor coming out are like, oh, but he grabbed. Cap's shield and the post-credit scene with Coulson in New Mexico and stuff like that, but like you're not really discussing like where Tony was left at the end of the movie, like mm. what we what we think for the future and stuff like that. And it's just whereas like Iron Man leaves you with that, like yeah. even even if you don't enjoy the third act of Iron Man, it still leaves you with that kind of like pronouncement of I am Iron Man, and you kind of go like where the hell are they going to go with this? This yeah. is well, I almost consider that separate to the third act. When I talk about how bad the third act is, I'm talking about the big fight with Stain and everything. That final scene of I am Iron Man, that's tremendous. I just wish what came before it for about 20 minutes or so was better. But um, I'd say this one, it, it kind of just it adds a lot of pieces to the board and it reacts to Iron Man 1. It just doesn't necessarily leave Tony specifically in a place of like, ooh, what next? To move on to character, do you think Robert Downey Jr. kind of like misses a step? with this one it's not i think he's trying a lot harder but he still like is electric when he's like fully on it's just it seems like he's trying to replicate what he did the first time around and not quite there if we're talking about you know we like to talk about our outstanding performances in in each film or whatever and you know we determined there wasn't one an incredible hulk you know and we have discussed off air about you know whether 
if Robert Downey Jr. is really good in another film, do we put him up against himself? I think Iron Man 1 Tony beats Iron Man 2 Tony, uh, to the point that I probably wouldn't put Robert Downey Jr. forward for this version. It's just it's just like more of the same. He amps, like, up, I, he amps up the cockiness right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy the kind of court scene. The court scene is, yeah. for me, one of my favourite parts of Iron Man 2. Yeah, but then also... It's so obnoxious. Part, yeah, but part of the reason why I love that courtroom scene is because of who he's playing off in that scene. Yeah. Because you have you have kind of Don Cheadle reacting to Tony, which is good fun, and a nice kind of like smooth introduction for him. Mm. But then you also have Gary Shandling and <sighs> Sam Rockwell, like who we will we will talk about both of those people. <laughs> like I think I think a huge part of this film is the aftermath of saying I am Iron Man. Because while that is a really bold creative decision to make you then turn the lens on, okay, so what happens after he says that? And you have this, like, super cocky Tony Stark who is a public celebrity, he loves being a superhero, the the courtroom scene and all of that. And that, But you have, they introduce this theme of, you know, knockoffs of his tech and you see people around the world trying and failing to make Iron Man suits, uh, including Justin Hammer. And you also have how easily whiplash gets to him uh, in monaco like he is a very public figure which makes him very easy to get at. and how vulnerable he is outside of that suit like before he can put it on at, in the monaco scene like he is full-on probably about to die i do like that idea that they're like they don't just forget about the fact that he said i am iron man and they'll do it again in iron man 3 arguably better but i i do like that that is one of the beats that this film plays off that it it deals with his decision of publicly admitting that he is. And, you know, if he doesn't do that, Ivan Vanko stays in his cell wherever he is because he's sitting there watching Tony say this on the news and that motivates him to do everything he does. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole reason he gets out there is because he sees Tony with the, the arc reactor on there. But yeah. would people be reporting on the arc reactor in Russia if he hadn't said, <laughs> I am Iron Man? Yeah. Like, I think I think it also the other big thing for this for me is that this film I mean Tony says it's about legacy with his expo and everything and you know I think it was I think Shane Black suggested that they should play Tony like Oppenheimer who felt so guilty after inventing the atomic bomb and you know Tony's legacy up until now has been as an arms dealer and Vanko even like calls him on it and says you know just like every rich man or whatever you're essentially trying to buy your way to a better reputation and that pairs very well with his palladium poisoning and everything and his own sort of sense of mortality like he can invent all this stuff but he's dying from it um he has this perfect life but you know he doesn't really have friends and he the scene where like he's got his shit together finally but like pepper's mad at him happy's now working for pepper black widow who was previously like flirting with is now sort of like paying more attention to pepper and happy and he just you can see he feels very alone and it furthermore ties into like you know vanco comes for him because of that and it's like the sins of the father like when we talk about the legacy it's the it's the it's the legacy that howard left to him where you know Vanko feels that his father wasn't credited with all this stuff and was screwed out of this, that, and the other. And I like both of those things, to be honest. It's just, there's just so much going on 
And I feel there's so much in service of like the ongoing MCU that they don't have enough time to play with these two ideas of yeah. reacting to Iron Man Man and developing the legacy thing. And they feel like the, I mean they're two elements that the MCU does come back to in regards to Tony because they're yeah. things that they touch on in Iron Man Three, they're things mm-hmm. they touch on in Captain America: Civil War. Is this idea of Tony's relationship with his father and Tony's relationship mm-hmm. with his creations and stuff like that. In fact, I mean, Age of Ultron very much deals with that kind of idea. Yeah, as, literally. Like, so they're, they, 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 obviously these are very rich thematic ideas. But yeah, as you say, like putting both of them in this movie and then also setting up kind of like the MCU and laying the groundwork for it, it becomes a very busy movie that doesn't really yeah. know where to put its focus. And also that this legacy thing and this uh, all of that, that it leads to a lengthy scene where he's inventing an element. I mean, on the one hand, that is a very comic book-ass thing. Like, I could, I fully could imagine reading that happening. That, like, Batman or Tony Stark or whoever has invented a new thing. And it's like, alright, whatever. It's just seeing it played out in a film is a bit much. And, like, his father, like, hiding it in the model of the Stark Expo is super corny. It's, it's, it's weird, because it's like, you have so much fun watching him build the suit in... Iron Man 1. I, yeah, and it feels like that's what they were going for, and it's just yeah. not the same. Yeah, but I think it's because, like, in that there are very real life and death stakes. You've got this whole, you've got 24 hours to build a rocket or a voice or a missile or whatever, or we're gonna kill you, essentially. Whereas this is, we know Tony's dying of poisoning, but there's not really like, definitive, like, you'll be dead at this point. Yeah, we don't know, like, if he can get to 100, if he dies at 60, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, the percentage, sorry, in his blood, yeah. Again, like it feels like they're trying to build up the stakes in a different way, but yeah. it, it's weird. I feel this is both slave to the first one and slave to the future, and it doesn't concentrate enough on the present for Tony's story yeah. because there are nuggets of good ideas here. I hate when people just dismiss this one fully. They're just like, "Oh, I'm Matthew's garbage." I, I, mean, I don't think it's garbage at all, but no, I do I think don't that. But I do think there are there is too much going on yep. and the, but the little there's like when i think of it i don't necessarily think of i think of individual scenes i think of characters and i think of those little moments it's stuff like the bit where he gets the the briefcase and like gets into the suit yeah. like that and that, that felt so, like such a nod to the cartoon like that's yes. what, that's why i remember from watching that cartoon all the like fun ways he could get into the suit yeah but i mean probably again the scene I enjoy watching the most is that courtroom scene, and that's yeah. just the characters talking to each other. And yeah. all right, well, speaking of the characters, I mean, I think <laughs> we've kind of covered Tony. Robert Downey Jr. continues to be good at being a cocky rich prick who's good at everything. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow is back as Pepper Potts. She is promoted to CEO very early in the film because Tony, like, it's just obsessed with being Iron Man. Doesn't give a shit about his company. He says, "Well, you basically run it anyway." I wish there was more of her in this. I feel that she is... I don't know, I think we covered it and we said we wish there was more of her in the first one, but I feel there is more of her in the first one than this one. She kind of just vanishes for the middle portion of the film. I like the scene she's in, it's just... It feels like they lost some momentum by leaving her out for so long. Yeah, like, and just that kind of way that she's brought back into the movie in the final act, kind of as the the damsel in distress. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, they, they go further with the love story, like... He promotes her and it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of half a compliment and half a almost dismissal. It's like, yeah, go go be CEO. Bye. And then, you know, the jealousy with Black Widow a little bit and 
you know when he's, he's when he's suffering from the poisoning and he like asks her to go away with him and he doesn't want to go home and stuff like that all things that if they'd let breathe and like played on more very good narratively but it, it feels like they kind of they went well stain is dead yeah can't have tony running a company because that's boring <laughs> so uh, i guess that's what pepper's doing we need someone to do this thing because obviously the t- company's a big part of it and we're doubling down on kind of like the expo and stuff like that yeah. but we can't have our genius character being the ceo because watching him work an office job isn't going to be exciting <laughs> at all just just several scenes of him doing tax returns and stuff yeah i mean i mean like you you get the feeling that tony never would have done that so like it, this is yeah. a move that's very much in line with what tony would do yeah. but because he gives her the ceo position and because he's never going to spend any time in the office you kind of force them away from each other because unless yeah. pepper's going to run stark industries from his living room yeah. like what reason what reason do they ever have to like interact apart from when she's kind of reacting to stuff he's doing on that mass public level mm. um, which is why she's only really in like the monaco scene it's why she's only really in the scene at stark expo is why she's only really in the scene where he actually goes to visit stark yeah. industries and then she disappears for the rest of the movie and of course he gets drunk and sleezes all over and tries to kiss her and he, i think he even says i love you yes <laughs> while very drunk and of course it all comes full circle at the end and they kiss and they're in a relationship and i feel i feel like they've been together for like a day and he's like yeah i'm in a semi-stable relationship i do like this scene where they bicker about him not revealing he was dying to her though um, when it's like he's dealing with very serious stuff and we just get this extended argument between them while Black Widow's like, um, guys? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that, I mean, that's again, like, they do have chemistry yeah. and that's part of the reason why you want to see more of Gwyneth Paltrow, like, yeah. which is something I don't think I would say normally, but, no. like, I do want to see more of Gwyneth Paltrow no. in these movies because she does have yeah. that chemistry of Rob She Benji, plays it well. It. She, like, grounds it and she gives it some some gravitas and what, I don't know, yeah. She's, she's good. She's one of the better, like, just human characters. Yes. I mean, probably still the best love interest in the MCU. I can't think of anyone... Well, we'll find out as we go, won't we? <laughs> we will. Maybe we're, we'll not rank- this... we're, not ra- we're not ranking love interests. <sighs> well, she's better than Betty Roth. Right, so Don Cheadle replaces Terrence Howard as uh, a roadie war machine. So Terrence Howard, as Ben pointed out, was making the most money out of Iron Man 1. They had him on a three-picture deal. They apparently wanted to pay him significantly less money. He claims, in a not-so-subtle way, that Robert Downey Jr. took some of his salary for Iron Man 2. He made many comments about, I guess, contracts aren't worth what they're printed on. Maybe his maths was off. I don't know. And then... He is a man who thinks one times one is one, or yes. one times one is two. Yes, you almost sounded very stupid just then. He apparently only had a few hours to accept or pass, and he never got to read a script. So good on him for this working out. Uh, I think he has very good chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. He is obviously a very sort of, you know, he's a calmer person. I just, I never really buy him as like a military man in the same way I did Terrence Howard. Even though he's been in so many films now as War Machine, it's just like, there's just something about it where I'm like, I don't know, I, I can't see Don Cheadle as War Machine, but. I think he's definitely kind of more right for kind of like the Shane Black version of Iron Man and that kind of, that kind of banter, that kind of banter stuff. But then yeah. when you, when you, when he is like, I couldn't see him in Iron Man 1. No. And because this movie kind of exists in that like kind of weird crossroads where they're kind of transitioning between those two styles he's kind of like stuck in the middle yeah 
and like he's good he's good at the kind of banter stuff but like he's still in this movie more than anything he is the military man yeah because and just, he's, it just doesn't flow to his strength i don't think yeah like because he has to command he commandeers the war machine costume and, yeah and, and flies it off pimp it out so you know he flies it when ostensibly it's the first time he's ever been in it and then black widow raises this question about authorization like how the suit would only work for authorized people is the implication here that because i think there is a throwaway line in iron man one about how when when tony's approaching Rhodey and he's like not now i maybe read it as tony was always building it for Rhodey and then decided fuck it i'll wear it again so yes. maybe he all along built it with Rhodey authorized to wear it I, so maybe Rhodey has worn it before i don't know but I 100% think that he has worn it with, with Rhodey in mind. I do not think that he has worn it before. I do think this yeah. is the first time he's worn it, but I do think this is, like, it is built with him in mind. Because he just sort of doesn't respond to Widow's thing. He just sort of gives this look and, like, mopes. <laughs> um, yeah, but, like, I mean, yeah, again, like, you, you yeah. get that kind of, like, next time nods and stuff like yeah, that. Because Tony obviously does imply in the first movie that, like, you can get in this. So if he has got that stuff involved, then... I do like that he is more like bullets and missiles compared to Tony's like lasers and gadgets. Like it, it makes it so he's not just another Iron Man suit. And this is still the suit though that kind of like froze up in Iron Man One, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Like this is a lesser version of the suit that he's wearing. This is maybe, this... maybe Tony retroactively gave it the like tech of. I mean, possibly, but like he steals the Mark Two is what the kind of implication is. Well, Tony's... I mean, Rhodey's probably not going to go trying to fly up into the. <laughs> atmosphere just for lols this is Um, true but it's one of those things because obviously at this point we're on the mark 5 armor yeah i think think the mark Mark 5 is the briefcase mark 4 is what he wears at the party and i guess what he jumps out of the plane in at the beginning i don't know yeah i think they they redesign it in between one and two i don't know what the mark 3 is or if it even exists the mark 3 is the mark 3 is the costume from the end of iron man one oh Um, of course sorry yeah the the mark 2 is what is what roadie goes off with yes Right. Yeah, the Mark II is the silver one, the Mark III is the one that's been coloured yes, red, red, red of, and gold, and then course. the Mark IV is, I think they give it the triangle, don't they? Yeah. Okay, and also I do like, it's a very small touch in the middle of a not very good series of scenes, but I do like that Rhodey gets to briefly show off that, you know, he's got this tactical mind um, when they're coordinating the attack at the end. Uh, when they're waiting for the drones to come, he's like, "Right, you, I'm going to go up here. You're going to go here." And it's like, "Okay," that is a nice like nod to why he would be good at this, even though I'm uh, Tony's got more experience using the suit. But yes, anyway, uh, Don Cheadle's here. He's here to stay. He will be in many more films. And he'll be better in future movies. He will. <laughs> he will also have a lot to do in future movies. A lot less to do in future movies. Yeah. A weird dynamic there. I have mentioned multiple times Black Widow, who I didn't mention in the synopsis, because who has the time? Scarlett Johansson debuts as Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Natalie Rushman, a.k.a. The Black Widow. I guess I should have swapped those first two around. S.H.I.E.L.D. have placed her within the Stark organisation to monitor Tony's actions, etc., and... She is basically performing an evaluation of of Tony and his readiness for the Avengers program. I actually think this is one of the better pieces of casting Marvel have done, and it doesn't get talked about much. You know, people wax lyrical about RDJ, etc., but I think she's a really good Black Widow, and I cannot imagine anyone else in the role. Emily Blunt turned it down because of Gulliver's Travels. But yeah, uh, this is her debut. Uh, she weirdly enough does like as much fighting and like kickassery as she does in Avengers or any other film. I think like John Favreau like really went for it. It's like, oh, you want to introduce Black Widow? Here's Black Widow. But the thing is, I 
this might be my least favorite performance of hers as Black Widow. Yeah, I mean, she was getting to grips with it. Yeah, but it's just it's just one of those things where like phys- physically she has the role down. Yeah, obviously, um, but like. Well, she spends most of the film undercover. To be fair, she does. She does, and I guess, and like, it's it's a nice little payoff when she does get to go full Black Widow in the jumpsuit, and yeah. she's taking down like tens of bad guys, and you've got <laughs> and you've got Happy Hogan kind of like struggling to take down his one. I love that he's having what he thinks is the most <laughs> epic movie fight scene against the ultimate antagonist, and in the background, she's taken out ten dudes. Which I mean is fun, but like yeah. also adds just to how busy this movie is. That has yeah. to somehow pay off the fact that you've introduced Natasha Romanoff, and I think future movies do better jobs at introducing characters Absolutely. before they get. Yeah. Before they get their own like starring role. Well, I mean, you compare this with you know Jeremy Renner in Thor, who isn't even credited and has like a one minute scene. We'll we'll discuss that more next time. Okay, but we, okay. may, we may have we may have different opinions on that okay. one. They also felt the need to put in not one but two unnecessary scenes where she's in her underwear. But hey, you know Hollywood and attractive women. I don't know. It's fun when if you know who she is when you when you're watching it and she's being the secretary. Uh, or, or the assistant, or whatever. She will do better things. But yeah, the debut of the Black Widow as part of their initiative to introduce a whole bunch of extra characters in one movie. I was going to talk about John Favreau as happy, but we basically said the only thing I really want to say. You know, like he's doing more things. He's a good comedic actor. He uh, he, he obviously like w- wanted to give himself more to do this time. Yeah. There's um, probably like less pressure to like make the movie up as he goes on, <laughs> so he has time to be in it. Yeah, he can he can move as scenes around as he gets to be in the Monaco scene, driving yeah. the car and actually reacting to stuff and all yeah, the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he gets more yeah. to do. He is fine. Yeah. Iron Man three is the more interesting way to talk about yeah. his role in it. Yeah, paired with Black Widow, we have Samuel L. Jackson back as Nick Fury again. Tough salary negotiations. He apparently said publicly, "I don't know if I will be Nick Fury after you'd already filmed that cameo for Iron Man one." But they got him on board. Some of his lines are not good in this movie, and he doesn't do a huge amount with them either. But he is always going to be Samuel L. Jackson. He is aloof. He is commanding. He's mysterious, all that. It kind of starts a tradition of ignoring big revelations from previous films, wherein these two sort of act as if they've never met. I don't know if this was because, you know, audiences at this time wouldn't have been trained to stay till the end of a movie's credits to see a scene. So maybe this is the first time people have seen... Nick Fury in, in these yeah, movies. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, you can't rely on the fact that people, like... Yeah. You can't rely on the fact that everyone's seen the first movie, so you can't... It's why they play the final scene from Iron yeah. Man 1 at the start of this one, is because this movie was going to do better. Yes. And, and even then, like, I have I still sit in cinemas now watching these movies, and people will still walk out before the I first know, movie. and you just tart under your breath, don't you? I mean, they have, <laughs> they have moved away from having, like, significant yeah. teases for the next movie in the previous movie now and now yeah. they're kind of more comedy stingers but even so like people will leave when when the directed by card comes up yeah <laughs> just like oh, look don't don't go there is going to be stuff in like two minutes that you yeah. can watch that will be important <laughs> to enjoyment yeah Nick Fury's here S.H.I.E.L.D. exists very front and centre after teasing them in the first one Clark Gregg is back as Phil Coulson he was a little bit shaky in his first outing in a way I forgot he is still a tiny bit here, but he is settling into it more. I like when he threatens to tase Tony and then watch... Um, I can't remember what he said. He was going to watch The Bachelor or something like that. <laughs> Some reality show. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I, mean, I, I think this is this is where you start to see, like, 
this I think I paid attention to him more in this one. Yeah. Like I forgot when I got to Iron Man two, I forgot that he was in Iron Man one. But yeah. by the end of this one, I kind of felt he was part of the ensemble. Yeah. Which is what you need, especially because he does get the big moment in the, yeah. the post credit scene as well. Like he mm. is, you see him as like even more so than Samuel L. Jackson who signed this nine picture deal. Like Clark Gregg is the guy that holds Phase yeah. One together. It's the Claire Temple. I always liked that he was sort of this unassuming looking man with a sort of dry smile and all this confidence who had this level of importance that you didn't quite understand. I thought that was always good. John Slattery is not as good as Dominic Cooper as Howard Stark. Yeah, I don't... I I think he's a better fit for like a distant dad, which is the element they play on. Um, I I love John Slattery to pieces. Of course. Like, he is forever and ever Roger Sterling from Mad Men. He is absolutely superb, and this is... When, when I heard this casting, that John Slattery would be playing Tony Stark's dad in flashback scenes to the 60s or 70s, whatever it is that, that these scenes are supposed to be taking place, you're like, this is genius casting. I want full-on Roger Sterling with the, the, the tumbler full of bourbon or whatever uh, being his dad and stuff like that. And then you kind of get two or three scenes with him where you don't really get the sense of kind of like that stark charisma to bleed through. Like he's, yeah. he's kind of positioned as kind of like the, the Walt Disney figure, mm. um, which doesn't, which doesn't, which doesn't feel right to be Tony's dad. Like you, you want that kind of more madcap insanity going on. <laughs> yeah. um, and Dominic Cooper brings that. And Dominic Cooper's obviously had a hell of a lot more time in the role. Cause in the fact he's on two seasons of agent Carter as well. But this feels like such a wasted opportunity to kind of like be able to tell that these two people are related. Instead, it's kind of he's he's there to get his scenes done, and then he's kind of yeah. through with the movie. Did they bring him back for Civil War? I feel they did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. John Slattery was back for Civil War. Fair enough. Paul Bettany is still Jarvis. Nothing remarkable this time. We'll talk about him in the future. We've got cameos from Leslie Bibb back as Christine Everhart. Olivia Munn is a reporter with a ridiculous name I can't remember. Chess Roberts. Chess Roberts. Kate Mara, of all people, plays a US Marshal that I fucks the shit out of Tony while serving him a subpoena, I think. Stan Lee plays himself slash Larry King. Uh, Elon Musk and Boo Bill O'Reilly are in it. And Max Favreau plays Peter Parker retroactively. (laughs) Um, At the time, John Favreau shoved his son in Iron Man mask and put him in the movie. They, a decade later, almost decided, hey, that's Peter Parker. So, forever and ever, Max Favreau has played Spider-Man. I didn't actually realise it was his son. That was a revelation to me. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, Max Favreau. Right, it's time for Villain Watch. Uh, We like to keep track because... Every time a Marvel movie comes out, I feel someone goes, oh, all Marvel movie villains suck. So we are trying to, like, scientifically prove if that's true or not. And, uh, well... Two for two so far. Yes. Bad. <laughs> we, uh, we have quite a little gamut here. We have Mickey Rourke as Ivan Vanko. I do not buy for one single second that he is a genius. He admitted that the hardest part about this was pretending he knew shit about computers when typing. Um, <laughs> oh, that's the best scene, is Mickey Rourke, Mickey Rourke typing. <laughs> Furiously. He's a good physical presence. Like, I like the look with the tattoos and the hair and all that. And I don't know, it's just, the whole thing is a giant, like, missed opportunity to me. Because You have, you have no idea how excited I was for Mickey Rourke to be cast in this movie. <laughs> we were coming out of... When we when I was watching these movies, I wasn't like the biggest film person in the world, so like I hadn't seen a lot of kind of Mickey Rourke's famous kind of late eighty stuff. 
And then you um, saw the wrestler. Well, yeah, well, I was going to say Sin City is kind of where I knew him from, okay. and obviously, yeah, and Sin City, obviously, he's great in Sin City. Um, but the wrestler is my favourite movie of the year it came out. He is phenomenal in that movie. Sure is. He is so damn good. Mm-hmm. And I think he gets cast in this movie literally off the back of that. Like, I think he goes from filming The Wrestler to filming Iron Man 2. Yeah. And, like, obviously this is Mickey Rock's big return. He's nominated for an Oscar for his role in The Wrestler. And all, and um, so you're just like, wow, he's going to be... Something must have attracted him to this role in Iron Man 2. Uh, that he's going to bring something to it. He's going to bring that physicality. He's going to bring just something to it. And then the movie comes out, and he's doing a terrible fake Russian accent. And yeah, he's he's like a proto version of Jared Leto's re- um, Joker. Yeah, they the even give him that Jokery scene where like he's in the cell, and then the next time you see him, the guards are hanging from the ceiling, and he's sitting there with a like crazy phone he's made. And then he just he's just gone. He's just controlling the drones, and then he shows up in a knockoff Ironmonger suit, and he dies like almost immediately. Like so pithy, like. Such a missed opportunity because, like this, this idea of like you know him holding Tony accountable for the things that his father did and holding him accountable for his own legacy, like that is in theory a good idea. And I like the little the scene when he's just been arrested and like they have their interaction in the prison. I think that's one of the better scenes for Mickey Rourke in this film. It's just he amounts to very little, and like Whiplash is one of the more famous Iron Man villains, but I mean Iron Man villains aren't generally all that good because most, no, I mean, he most is, Iron he Man two, villains are another Iron Man he is two Iron Man villains as well yes like they combine Whiplash and Crimson Dynamo yeah. so you kind of get the feeling that like, they, they're really reaching for something with this character to kind of like build someone who is not just a one dimensional bad guy yeah. doing and anything so, they can to not do the Mandarin <laughs> yeah and so their solution to make him not one dimensional is to give him a cockatoo Bored. my bird <laughs> Um, like um, I, I like Mickey Rock and the physicality. Like I like yeah. the kind of breakout scene from the from the prison where he like smashes the guy's head into the into the toilet and yeah. like use use the plastic explosive behind him and stuff like that. Yeah. That is all and very when he, nice. Like, sees the guys wearing the same prison number as him. He's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah. So like it's physically it's very good. And also mm-hmm. I like when he's like dismantling the 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 Iron Man costume that. Um, hammers made in build and stuff like that yeah, so like yeah, yeah. the physicality of it is all very good it's just when he talks or when he is supposed to be the arch villain of it you just kind of go like i don't buy this no. at all he should have been more whiplash and less crimson dynamo in my opinion like more just physical villain and less like you know rival genius or whatever because you Especially... know what they cast a rival genius and they did it amazingly uh sam rockwell as justin hammer my God, <laughs> have I have I have I made my ludicrous claim to you? No. Sam Rockwell makes every movie one star better. Sure, I'll go with that. Sam that, Rockwell is amazing. How is Sam Rockwell not in more things? Obviously, he's got a hell of a lot of like good movies to his name, but I just feel like why isn't he just getting offer after offer after offer? Charismatic as all hell in this film. A wonderful sort of foil for oh he's not he's not quite the straight man but sort of the lamer Tony Stark like the dude dressing as Tony trying he, to live his life. He is carrying an awful lot of the comic weight of this movie. Yeah, yeah. I I love that he calls Tony Anthony and like he's so corny. He's like God bless Iron Man, God bless America. I love his reading of I'd like to point out that that test subject survived <laughs> and like. It's just great, and like the open disdain those two have of each other, and 
when he comes out dancing at the expo and just my heart flutters. Um, he, he, he would reprise this role in, uh, what is it, Hail the King? Or Hail, to, Hail to the King. Yeah. The, um, they haven't the... started doing the one-shots yet, have they? No, is the first one with Thor or is it with Captain? Well, they've got they've got they've got a, like a funny thing happened on the way to um, yeah but, New Mexico. I think is the first one. Yeah, and I think that's on the disc for Captain America, and then like Item Thirty Seven or something is with is on the that's on the Avengers. Oh, yeah. the, the consultant is the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah, Fact. the consultant is the first one, which is on the disc for Thor. A funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer is on Captain America. Then you got Item Forty Seven. Then you got Agent Carter, and then you got All Hail the King. Fair enough. They should get back to making those. They were fun. Sam Rockwell's amazing. <laughs> Sam Rockwell is almost the entire reason to watch this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will never, ever allow this to be fully trashed if for no other reason than Sam Rockwell demands to be watched in this movie. Like, I'm Sam stunned Rockwell... they haven't brought him back like full scale in a movie. Sam Rockwell takes this movie from a two and a half star movie to a three and a half star movie through sheer will. Fuck yeah. Gary Shandling as a senator. He's funny. Of course he is. He's Gary Shandling. Included him in villains because he is antagonistic to Tony. Um, His better better role is in a future movie. True. The greatest cameo. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so the point of Villain Watch is to attempt to rank all these villains as we go. Maybe end up with a top ten list. Maybe we'll have every single villain. I think so far we have it going like Stain... Abomination. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll split them up. So it's Stain, Human Blomsky, Human Blomsky, Thunderbolt Ross, Raza, Abomination. <laughs> yes. Okay. Justin Hammer is number one. Just uh, like no question, like Justin yeah. Hammer is number one. Yeah. Uh, Whiplash. Better or worse than Stain? Worse than Stain. Worse than Stain. Better or worse than Human? Because Stain has that personal history. Uh, also, he's worse, Jeff worse than Human Blomsky. He can't be that bad. Worse than Human Blomsky. Okay. Worse than human, because human blobs. He's got that kind of like yeah. insane look in his eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely, and also he gets kicked into a tree. <laughs> Legendary, the stuff of movie legend. Uh, Whiplash, better or worse than Thunderbolt Ross? Better. Yeah, I'm with you. So that okay, that's that's our ranking. Are, are we going to call Gary Shandling a, a villain in Marvel history? No. All right, I just thought I'd throw. I mean, he's there. he's a Nazi, but he's not a villain. <laughs> No, he is a villain because he's a Nazi. He but a at this point, at this at this point, we don't know he's a Nazi. That's true. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, Marvel villains thus far. We, I think, we actually have a good one. It's not just that we're trying, we're struggling to rank the bad ones. We have our first officially good Marvel villain. I would say we have our first officially good Marvel villain who should have been the lead villain in this movie. Yeah, he was almost cast as Tony Stark in Iron Man One. But we would have had so much Sam Rockwell then. I know. <laughs> he's great. He's great. There is a YouTube video where someone just cut together his dance scene and like put it on loop and put it to different music, and it's great. You should watch it for four hours. So I haven't seen Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri yet, but I almost entirely want to just because he is in this movie. Okay. Might have recommended that film, I think. I've heard problematic things from some people, but like I love him bruised enough that I will go see it. Fair enough. Speaking of Sam Rockwell, let's do outstanding performance nominees. He is mine. I'm not going to put forward Robert Downey Jr. for this one. If you would like to, you can. No, it's it's Sam Rockwell. It's Sam Rockwell, and we still have one in the bank from Incredible Hulk. Unless you think there's anyone in this movie that deserves one as well. I, I don't I, think there is. I think we're still sitting on this this spare one, and I think we're going to need it when we come I think, to the I Avengers. Think, I think. I think. I yeah. I think I know who I'd want to give it to in Avengers. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So so far, the pantheon of great 
Marvel performances. It's Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man 1, and it's Sam, Ro- Sam Rockwell in Iron Man 2. Sam Rockwell. Uh, why is Sam Rockwell not back? I know, I know. Why isn't he like a full-on like villain in an Avengers or something? Why haven't they Loki'd him? Yeah, why isn't there like a coalition of villains and like Sam Rockwell is funding them and giving them all their tech? Why not? Like, Hammer Tech is mentioned in Luke Cage, I believe. Let's not, let's not talk about that. Okay. Uh, right, and finally, our final like little regular segment. Good third act, bad third act. Most superhero movies have two good th- first acts and a bad third act. Marvel are guilty of it. Uh, so far, I think Iron Man 1, we agreed. Bad third act, Incredible Hulk. Very bad third act. How is Iron Man 2's third act, would you say? If we're saying purely good or bad. I think this is the first time where the third act is a step up from the second act. Hmm. I still think it's a bad third act, but I think I, it's, I, it's a less dramatic drop-off, and as you said, it's almost actually a, an elevation. Yeah, um, because you've, you've come out of the element stuff, and you get a lot of payoff to the stuff. Like the lot, A lot of the stuff I think about of this movie is the Black Widow scene, where she's like fighting the ten dudes, yeah. and like I, I enjoy stuff like the joke about the weapon that Rhodey's got from Hammer, <laughs> um, like completely backfiring. Like I think the final fight between... Um, Tony, Rhodey, and Vanko are is bad. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's not even it's, a fight. Like he, he shows up, holds them both, and then they kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's dull because it's just another man in a suit. Yeah, exactly. Is, uh, that is my biggest problem with Iron Man is that the it always boils down to another Iron Man, and that in theory is a very narratively good idea in that like he is held accountable for what he has created. It's just watching it in a film is not interesting. Yeah, they will change that formula in Iron Man three, which we'll talk about in several episodes' time. But it's part of that kind of like whole holding up a mirror to the villain type mm-hmm. thing that you can more interestingly do with something like The Dark Knight, where the the Joker is like a he's a critique of Batman. Yeah, a critique of Batman, and also like a kind of mirror disturbed image, like a Funhouse mirror version. Yeah, of Batman anyone kind of could have a bad day. Yes, whereas, whereas, whereas this is literally a mirror. Like this is literally this is a suit that Tony designed. Yeah. But evil, yes. and it's just—it's just so much less interesting. Like, there's no, like, there could be interesting things going on here. You could do Tony as being the rich billionaire, and then his his dad kind of like taking money away from this other person. You get a critique of like the one percent versus almost like the Walt Disney critique, which would have been complicated. But the idea of like Walt Disney copywriting things and presenting other people using intellectual property and all kinds of complicated things but instead the movie just kind of distilled to tony is a fundamentally good guy despite the fact he's benefiting from this because of capitalism and because of his father's um after like ways and so because he is villainous he must die there is no moral grayness to what mickey rocks ivan vanko is doing like in fact at the end they kind of come around and say no vanko didn't help that much with this it was all howard Howard got him deported is still a very villainous sentence, though. <laughs> Was he, Bring like, it. just... Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, that's Iron Man 2. That's its legacy. It is ranked very low on most people's lists. I don't know if I'm quite willing to put it right at the right near the bottom. I think it's better than Incredible Hulk. It was... I don't know. It tried more than Iron Man 1, but it also... That resulted in a less fun movie, so... It's, it's number two right now. Yes. Okay, sure. Iron Man. Iron Man 2. Incredible Hulk. I'd go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, that's been episode three. Uh, We will be talking about Thor next week. 
Oh God, his eyebrows, man! Like, they they haunt me. What his eyebrows look like in this film? It's a very weird critique, but I think when you watch it again, you'll you'll be right there with me. The debut, essentially, of Chris Hemsworth in the existence of the world. He was born onto the screen as Thor. Uh, and... You are forgetting performance as the father of one Tiberius Kirk oh, in Star Trek. Of course. Trek. Wait, is that pre-Thor? Yeah, it's two thousand nine. Oh man, this was pre-Iron Man two. Wow. That's weird, because I feel I knew who he was, and I saw that film in the cinema, so where would I know him from? Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about Thor next week, so uh, this has been a good podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.